1 Samuel 19, again, it's printed in your bulletin. This is where we've made it thus far in 1 Samuel. We've done every chapter, every verse, uh, maybe not in the way some would do it, uh, but pray it's being fruitful and that the Lord blesses it even now. 1 Samuel 19, now Spall, Saul, Spall, mm. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, Goliath. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David. Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. And there was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now this distressing spirit, remember it comes upon Saul. David plays the harp. This distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing music with his hand. And then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So she let David down through a window, and he went, and he fled and escaped. And she took an image and laid it in the bed, that is, an, an idol. She put a cover of goat's hair for its head and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. And then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. When the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for its head. And Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? She answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? So David fled and escaped. And went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed at Naoth, it's a place where the school of the prophets were. And it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. And they also prophesied. When Saul was told, 
He sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. And he also went to Ramah, Saul himself, and came to the great well that is at Sechu. So he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? Someone said, Indeed, they are at Naoth in Ramah. So he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he, yes, Saul, went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul among the prophets. Amen. And then our epistle reading there, Philippians 1, 3 through 11. It says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with all joy, you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. And then our gospel reading there from Matthew chapter 18, it ends over on the next page. Then Peter came to him, that's Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, Jesus said to him. I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle those accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. He released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? His master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. And so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. 
The word of our God endures forever. Holy children of the Lord, have you ever seen a dog eat a bone? Or a dog chew on a bone that was too much to eat? You older folks have probably heard the expression that someone is like a dog on a bone. All right? This figure of speech, it, it explains someone who doesn't give up. They're relentless. They know no distraction because they are so focused on their bone. Saul, in our text, has a bone. And that bone is putting David to death. And you see, like his laser focus on David that's been going on for several chapters, it's beginning to affect his judgment more and more. He, like so many, when enraged, becomes completely irrational. You see, the truth is that sin blinds us. It blinds us to the providence of God. Remember what Shorter Catechism 11 says, that providence, the providence of God is His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all His creatures and all their actions. So to say that sin makes you blind to the providence of God is to say that sin makes you blind. You can't see anything. You can't discern things rightly. If you've ever seen a child in a temper tantrum, you know it. Right? They become so enraptured by what has made them upset. You need to know as well as Christians that the enemy is relentless and he will pursue you to the very end. The enemy has a bone as well, and it is Christ and his people. A few weeks ago, we recited Psalm 86, and it contained this lot. Oh, wow. It contained this line. It says, Oh God, the proud are risen against me. The assemblies of violent men have sought after my soul and have not set you before themselves. That's what David's feeling. He's being surrounded, right? Not just Saul is coming after him, but Saul's men are beginning to come after him. Uh, Mr. Ed brought up David Dixon last week in adult Sunday school, so I picked it up this week, and then he talked about it more in Sunday school this morning. But considering Psalm 86, David Dixon says this, and it, it aligns very perfectly with our text in 1 Samuel 19. It says, When men reject the fear of God, there is no wickedness so great which they will not commit. When men reject the fear of God, there is no wickedness so great which they will not commit. And yet, that same psalm, Psalm 86, closes by saying, Show me a token for good, that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. You see, the psalmist in Psalm 86 is asking for a token for good in his own favor that his and the Lord's enemies might be ashamed at the Lord's own help for his beloved. This very reality is shown in 1 Samuel 19. David behind the scenes, and he, he hints at it, and Jonathan hints at it as well. They want Saul's eyes to be opened. They want Saul to see the tokens of good that God is working in David's life, even by protecting David from Saul 
himself. David is shown multiple tokens of good in his favor. The ultimate intent being that Saul might be ashamed. But is he? No, he's not. The Holy Ghost in the Scriptures presents to us and records for us that Saul completely lacks shame. You see, that's another thing that goes when your heart is hardened by sin. Not only do you lose your rational faculties, you you don't care, you're like a dog on a bone, right? You completely lack shame. Have you ever seen a dog that is never aggressive around children or people? You give him a bone, and it might be a different case. He'll snap, right? That bone does something to the dog. Sin does something to people. In chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession, it speaks about the providence of God. Now, that's a, a foreign concept to us, just the providence of God. If you read, though, the letters from the Civil War and past uh, uh, occasions like that where Christian people are writing letters, they almost use providence as a name for God, right? The conclusions of their letters will be something like, if providence sees fit to care for me in this way. And they're referencing the fact that God controls all things and governs all things. Saul's blind to this. David is not. But as I said, chapter 5 of the Confession, it says that there are those who have gifts of the Spirit and yet are removed because of sin. Isn't that what happened to Saul? He has been exposed to such objects or situations where he's not being forced to sin. But those situations, they prove to bring out his corruption. It proves too much for him. Because he trusts in himself rather than the Lord, sin continues to come. And yet those same situations prove different for the up-and-coming anointed one, David. The very things that God uses to drive Saul further into the ground are the same things that God uses to lift David up to his throne. David, the son of Jesse. These events, they're especially framed for David's deliverance and for Saul's further hardening. You begin to see parallels with Pharaoh, don't you? With the people in Egypt. These things are framed to further David's righteousness, but also to further Saul's wickedness. One writer says this, like Israel before him, David escapes from a murderous king, another Pharaoh. He flees into the wilderness and will later fight against the Amalekites before returning to the land to take control. Close quote. You see Saul, again, he's like a dog on a bone. But he has such a hard time seeing that this particular bone from Bethlehem is under the special care of the Lord. God's providence, his preserving and governing of all things is unknown to Saul. You might say Saul must not have known his catechism. He's blinded by his own sin and corruption, unable and unwilling to see that David is very obviously being protected. Saul's inability to see is likened to an inability to prioritize because what should Saul have been doing instead of focusing on David, focusing on the enemies of God, doing what a king does, fighting wars, defending the land, promoting righteousness, 
But what has he done? Because he's lost his focus, he can no longer follow his priorities. You know these situations, don't you? Where the thing that ought to be is no longer the thing. You've lost your focus. Maybe you've never lost your focus, but certainly you know someone who has. It's like the dog on a bone mentality. You or they, they become so focused, we become so focused on something that should not be the focus, like Saul killing David, that it prevents you from focusing on the good that you ought to be doing. You could call it spiritual ADD. This is what a corrupt heart does. Not just a sinner in general, but someone who has entered a pattern of forsaking the Lord's instruction in favor of doing that to which the flesh would draw them. Saul is not concerned about the Lord. There is no fear of God before his eyes, so he knows no limits. Did you count in our text in 1 Samuel 19 how many times David is delivered from the hand of Saul? There's four. All right. One, the first one, is by Jonathan. Jonathan's intercession. Remember, children, last week as we looked at 1 Samuel 18 and talked about Jonathan and David's friendship. They made a covenant together. The second thing is we call it David's own agility. This, that part of the passage reminds me of when Jesus is surrounded in Luke and then the text just records, and he slipped through their midst. Right? When they were ready to stone him. Right? David's own agility, if you want to call it that. He had quick feet. Because deception is another one, right? Saul's daughter, whom he had given David to marry, she deceives her father and his men so that David is preserved. And the last one, I would argue the most interesting, is the help of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that in just a moment. But no matter the situation, those four, David is delivered. Maybe a good reminder for you as we meditate on how God delivers him in so many different ways. It relates to the providence of God. It's Psalm 115.3. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. You see it very much in this text. God is not limited by the earthly power of Saul. He forbids us, remember, in the prophets and the Psalms from putting our trust in princes. And he shows himself true to that by overthrowing this prince Saul again and again. God frustrates Saul's purposes through Jonathan, through David, through his own daughter, and even through the Holy Spirit. So with Jonathan's intercession for David, let's talk about that for just a moment. Notice what Jonathan does. He reminds his father of his words towards David. You see, this is normally what a parent does to a child. But because of Saul's corruption, his child has to assume that role. He reminds him of his vows, as it were. What a concept. People do this with marriage vows, right? Churches do it with membership vows. They renew their vows. Seminaries do this with student covenants. Examples abound. And by setting these words before his father, Jonathan shows you what true intercession is. Think of prayer. Yes, think of prayer in the image of Jonathan 
pleading with his father. We pray this same way before our heavenly father, but he's not an unjust father. We lift up his promises to him. When we call earthly fathers back to their proper path, or whether it be a civil father or a domestic one, we remind them of that which is required of them. Jonathan, in this instance, is a positive model for us. And Saul appears to be as well for a moment, but he ultimately proves to be lying and blinded by his focus on his bone. Did you notice this? As, as we've read through Saul's uh, fury with David, that it is only the good things that David does that make Saul angry? Everything that David does that is held out as righteous is what makes Saul so angry. There's a lesson there for us. Do not imagine that doing good automatically wins the favor of those who hate God. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. The next thing, David is, is strengthened by the Lord, isn't he? Uh, my children have this book where it rehearses different verses uh, from the Psalms. I believe they're all from the Psalms, but it's, it's, uh, it encourages them to perform the action that the verse states. There's ones about running and sitting and kneeling, and they're all scriptures. Uh, one of them is Psalm 18:29. It says, For by you I have run through a troop, and by my God I have leaped over a wall. That sounds kind of strange, right? But the fact is that David is strengthened by God. He is given the ability uh, to elude enemies. That's what it points to in Psalm 18, 29. God grants to his beloved strength to escape. And then in a tremendous twist of what you might call irony, I hinted at this last week, I think it was, that Saul probably is imagining that he's going to trip David up with the daughter that he does decide to give. Remember, he tries. He acts like he's going to give the first one, then he pulls her back and gives her to another man, and then he ends up giving Michal to David, and he, he, it says in the text, so that she might cause David to stumble, basically. But the text doesn't tell us why. Maybe here in chapter 19 we get an image, no pun intended, of why Saul thought she might be able to trip him up. Because you see the various kings throughout Scripture, very often they're tripped up by idolatry, especially Solomon when he marries all those foreign wives and they bring in their foreign worship and all those things. But this is the irony, as it were, or the exaltation of God's providence. Even the idolatry of his daughter works for David's deliverance. Isn't that something? Even the idolatry of Saul's daughter, because she used an idol, right, that would have been present in their home, sadly. Leave that, leave that be, as it were. But only God can do these kind of things. What Saul meant for evil, God used it for good. Doesn't commend idolatry in any way. Just tells you what happened. And then... Even more of a mental twister, it is for me at least. And I, you have to let this ruminate a bit in your heart. If you read this and you know, there was no hesitations or hiccups in your, your soul, maybe 
uh, you're just smarter and more sanctified than me, which is not impossible. Um, but you have to let it ruminate a bit in your heart to really grasp what is happening. The fourth thing I mentioned, prophesying and the coming of the Spirit upon men is used as a means for David's deliverance. Think about that for just a second. Prophets receive the Spirit to prophesy, to you know, do like Isaiah did, to do like Jeremiah did, and all these different things. There's a school of the prophets here. So it wouldn't have been weird for someone going there to be prophesying. But it seems so pragmatic, doesn't it? Right? God who reserves His Spirit for these purposes is going to use His Spirit or the Holy Spirit as God acts. It seems that these men are used, literally just borrowed for this moment by the Spirit and brought into prophesying for what might be false pretenses. The Lord literally borrows them so David can get away. Not that they're ultimately going to be prophets. Right? That's why they asked the question, is Saul among the prophets? Right? The Lord appears to, and he indeed does, take control of these men by his spirit in order to free David. And what this is, it's like the, the flip side of what happens with Pharaoh. Right? There's illusions of Pharaoh all over this text. Remember, Pharaoh is hardened so that he would not believe. He is pushed away from uh, rightly responding to the threats of the plagues and those kind of things. Right? That's a negative use of the Spirit, a hardening work of the Spirit. But it appears here there's a positive use of the Spirit, a means of God working in a different way by His Spirit and borrowing them, using them for the purpose of freeing David. Now, Matthew Henry makes a few powerful points on this, as he often does. First, he says that God is free and able to strike all in the hearts of even the most vile men. Right? So maybe that's what's going on. That the worship of God was so profound in this school of the prophets. Right? Have you ever entered into a, a time of worship like that? Where you kind of come in lollygagging and then boom, the Spirit of God just takes over. Right? Not in a Pentecostal weird way, but you just you know that the presence of the Lord is there. Maybe that's what's going on. Because he says God is free and able to do this. In 1 Corinthians 14, after all, verse 24 and 25, it says, If all prophesy and there comes in one that does not believe or one who is unlearned, he is convinced by all and he is judged by all. Thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he worships God and reports that God is in you of a truth. That's 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24 to 25. But he also asked this. He's drawing illusions, allusions, whatever the proper term is there, of what the power of God's worship is. He said, Where may the influences of the Spirit be expected the most but in the congregations of God's saints? So he's almost saying that, Why are we surprised that the Spirit of God takes over Saul and his men? Isn't the worship of God powerful enough to do that? All that to say that, practical application, the corporate worship of the church is as good a place as any to invite an unbeliever. 
Second, Matthew Henry says, the Lord actually, as well, shows his own power over the hearts and tongues of men. This is when the providence of God fully works against Saul, we might say. He says, he that made heart and tongue can manage both to serve his own purposes. God who made the heart and the tongue can manage both to serve his own purposes. So in some sense, we should not be shocked at all that Saul is led to do this because God is in control of the hearts and tongues of all men. What were they prophesying after all? We don't know. But maybe they were declaring that David had slain his ten thousands compared to Saul's thousands and by the Spirit of God, Saul is joining them. (laughs) Just speculation, but... Another thing Henry points out, then I'll be done with Matthew Henry's. So good, though. In explaining the Spirit taking hold of Saul, he quotes Matthew 7, verses 22 to 23. Now, this is a text that we use to speak about people who, what we might call false converts, um, or, or whatever the case may be, and that, that's a true use of it. But with this text of Saul in mind... You wonder if Jesus didn't have it in mind when he said this. You ever heard these words, Matthew 7, 22 through 23? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name have we not cast out many devils? And in your name done many wonderful works? And then I, Jesus says, will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. You see, we like to abstract the things that Jesus says out of the Gospels and make them more about current situations than past. And there's certainly current application. That's not the point. But I wonder if Jesus didn't have this text like it, this text in his mind when he said that. Right? Because he's addressing these leaders of Israel, those who would have been like Saul, persecuting the righteous. Might we say that this very thing from Matthew 7, to 23 is what happens with Saul. As his life progressed, he produced more and more bad fruit. It does not appear that he lived a faithful life on the whole, though he was used by the Lord for a time. We have this witness from Christ himself that many will indeed do great works in his name without even knowing him. All this to say, don't doubt that these men, Saul included, notice he sent three different groups of men. They all really did prophesy. Saul really did prophesy. And yet that is no indication that they were ultimately in good standing with the Lord. Not at all. This is no cruelty of God, for he is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. He will deliver his own in his own way, and for his own glory. Congregation, as we move through the year, we should remember not only the civic calendar, but the church calendar. And we are approaching Advent season. During Advent, you prepare for Christmas and the celebration of Christ's incarnation by studying Seems kind of counterintuitive, but you do it by studying the second coming of Christ. You get ready for Christ's incarnation or his birth by thinking about his 
second coming. Now, this is not as contradictory as it may sound, because truly, all things in the Scriptures, even the birth, death, resurrection, ascension, all those things, all of the Scriptures are meant to bring you to a right belief about God and then to prepare you for the judgment. In our epistle, in our gospel reading, they were, there were direct references to the last day. Philippians 1 spoke of the day of Christ. Matthew 18 spoke of facing the Heavenly Father. And our new hymn of the month, in just a moment, leads us in singing about the coming of Christ. So my question is this. How does 1 Samuel 19 prepare us for the last day? And how does that then prepare us for celebrating the Lord's Supper? The chief way I want you to consider the last day in light of 1 Samuel 19 is this. Are you reading the providence of God like David or like Saul? You see, David noticed the Lord's working. He lived a blameless life. He knew the Lord was for him. Saul saw all the same things. But he did not notice because sin had captured his heart. We might say he had lost perspective because, you you know, you could push back and say, well, pastor, I'm not trying to kill anybody, so I'm not really like Saul. But let's reduce it even more simply. Saul simply lost focus of what he was supposed to do as a king. How easy is it for you to lose focus as a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a son, as a brother, as an employee, whatever the case may be, how easy is it for you to lose focus? Sin causes you to do this. I've highlighted in past sermon that past sermons that God's providence are not simply meant to make you say wow, but meant to lead you to holy living for him and trust in Jesus Christ his Son, you see, the truth is this, and we have a hard time grasping it, but I think the reason we have a hard time grasping it is because, quite frankly, we don't really believe it. Everything that happens to you is meant to bring you to obedience and submission in faith to God. Everything. Everything. And this is a tremendous aid to piety, to living as a holy man, woman, boy, or girl. Think throughout your day, especially at the moments that are either more difficult or more easy, because those are the times when we're most tempted to forget God. What would God have me to do, and how should I live for Him in this moment? What is He teaching me? And then how does this prepare you for the Lord's Supper? The supper of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the chief ways that the Lord Jesus Christ strengthens his people. Meditate on the fact that he feeds you his body and his blood by the spirit that you might be further conformed to him. He literally gives you himself to make you like him. And children, maybe you've heard this before. But one of the benefits of knowing Christ that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians is being like Jesus includes being given his mind. Being made like Jesus 
includes being made to think like him. The Lord's Supper helps you to think like Jesus. This means, to draw on 1 Samuel 19, that the Lord's Supper helps you read God's providence in the right way. So I beseech you, I plead with you, dear Christians, come to the table this morning desirous for the mind of Christ, knowing that all who come to the Father through the Son will by no means be cast out. Amen. Let's pray.